You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin. Hey everyone, it's Michael Jamin. Welcome back to Screenwriters Need to Hear This. I got another, another cool. I got another cool episode. I, I was so excited about this. I I tripped over my own words. Uh, I am here with uh, actor writer Phil Lamar, and this guy. All right, so I'm on his IMDb page because he going through his credits. Phil, I'm not joking. It's taking me too long to scroll through IMDb to get through all your credits. <laughs> it's nuts how much you work. But so I'm going to give you. Real fast, an introduction, and then we'll talk more about what we're going to talk about. Uh, but okay. so this guy does a lot of a ton of voiceovers. Uh, I guess I think we met on King of the Hill, and I know we worked together on Glenn Martin DDS. But future, you know him from Futurama, from Beavis and Butthead, Family Guy, uh, The Great North, all the, every single adult animated show, a ton of kids shows, Star, Bob's Burgers, that's adult, of course, Rick and Morty. Uh, uh bob burgers bob's burgers movie as well i mean i'm going through all your stuff here it's nuts you were a writer performer on mad tv for many years and i think the i'm sorry to say this but the the coolest role that everyone knows you that you maybe you get recognized most from right we you know what it is is you were the, you were in pulp fiction and you had your head blown off in the back of the car and i remember watching like oh my god they killed phil <laughs> <laughs> i mean how awesome was that role Oh man, but so Phil, thank you for doing this. Welcome, welcome to this. And I want to talk all about your amazing career. Uh, but now tell me, so how did you get into acting? When did you decide you wanted to be an actor? Well, it's funny because there are a couple of double steps in terms of how I started being an actor and when I decided to be an actor and when I got into voiceover. Both right. Um, my first time performing was in eighth grade. My uh, school was doing a production of a book that I loved. I didn't consider myself a performer. Right. It was the Phantom Tollbooth. And there's right. this little character towards the end of the Phantom Tollbooth, the senses taker, who will take your sense of purpose, your sense of duty, but he can't take your sense of humor. Right. And I wanted that part. So that's why I went and auditioned. But I wound up getting cast as one of the leads. Wow, okay. And opened the show alone on stage under a spotlight doing a two-minute monologue. Okay. And it flipped a switch in my head. I'm like, oh, I love this. You're That's a what, So I started you know, being an actor because I liked a book. Right. But then, but okay, but it's one thing to be acting in, as a kid in eighth grade and then to right. commit your career to it. What, what, what happened next? Well, and it's funny because I didn't consider that a career or what I was doing. It's just, it's fun. I yeah. get to play. Well, and also I went to an all boys private school. So right. the only time you got to see girls was when you did a play. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That makes, now you're makes sense. Now yeah. we know why you're being an actor. <laughs> and um, I wound up graduating and I applied to colleges that had, you know, drama programs, Northwestern, Carnegie Mellon, Yale University. But I wound up deciding not to go to Carnegie Mellon, and I went to Yale. It's like, no, no, I just want to go to college. And I did not decide to pursue acting as a career. I just majored in English. It was on the flight back home to L.A. I said, you know what? Maybe I should pursue this acting thing. I mean, I enjoy it, and, you know, some people say I'm pretty good at it. I mean, I either got to do it now or 
wait till my mid forties when I have a midlife crisis. Yes. <laughs> but this is Yale undergrad. Yes. Yale's not, really not for the grad school of the school of uh, yeah. drama. But Which you didn't go back because to... when you're an actor and you say you went to Yale, people assume, oh, yeah. like Meryl Streep and Henry Winkler. It's like, right. no, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> but so after you got out of college, you got out. Of, we went to Yale, and there's some pressure on you to. Uh, oh, they Princeton over there. We're going to continue. Ah. We'll continue <laughs> our. We'll set aside our differences long enough to have this conversation. But um, so but after college, you're like, okay, I got a big fancy Yale degree, and I'm going to become an actor. Right. And, you know, had I decided to be a comedy writer with no. a Harvard degree, that would have been yes, that would a, make sense. You know, a career path that made sense. Right. As a Yaley, there were no famous Yaleys as writers or producers or anything. There were a handful of you know drama school actors. But again, right. I didn't go to that drama school. So I'm like, OK. Yeah, there's no connect. People talk about the connections. Now, there's no connection just because you there's no inroad just because you went to Yale, if, you know. Dude, no. Yeah. No, the, the only famous undergraduate actors at that time in the 80s were two women who were famous before they came to Yale, Jennifer Beals and Jodie Foster. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So then you made this commitment to or this, this leap. How long? Your parents must have been thrilled. <laughs> how long before you started getting work and how did you start get work, getting work? Well, and, and this is another one of the double steps. Uh -huh. um, I, when I made this decision, I already had my SAG card. How did you get that? Because back in high school, a friend of my mother's worked for NBC. Uh -huh. And I think my mother had dragged her to see a couple of my plays. And so she said, hey, we're doing this cartoon and we're going to use real kids for the kids' voices, which oh. back in the 80s was a rare thing. Yeah. And she, asked me to, to come in and audition for it. And I got a job on the Mr. T cartoon in the mid eighties. Oh, wow. And that got me my union card. Now I did not, again, did not consider this a career path. I, it was just a cool summer job. Yeah. Now the thing is, cause I hear this a lot. People say to me, yeah, I, I can do a million voices and you can do literally a million voices. I, I, how do I get into, um, you know, voice acting? And it's like, they don't seem to put the connection that it's not enough that you do voices. You have to know how to act. You have to be a trained, you have to, you know, know be, if you're trained or, you, or even better, but you have to know how to perform and act. And so yeah, that's, that's what I always tell people who ask me that question. I say, the first thing you need to know is voice acting. The term is a misnomer uh -huh. because the acting comes before the voice. Yes. Yes. You know, well, that's why you have amazing people like Cree Summer, who has a really distinctive speaking voice. But she has the acting ability right. to make every character completely different and real. It's the same thing like, you know, a, a movie star. But it's the same a, face, but it's always a different character. But there's something else that you bring. And I say this because you are a consummate pro. You are truly a pro. It's well, for, what you bring to it that other actors, that non-voice actors, I guess, I don't know what you would call them, but have. But when I'm directing a voiceover actor, mm. Sometimes if they haven't done a, vo a lot of voice acting, they don't realize they're using their face or their body. And, and you say, no, 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 I, I see you're acting the part. I see you're playing mad, but I have to hear it in my ear. And so I don't look at them when I'm directing. I want to hear it. And right. right. And so to talk about that a little bit. Yes, yes. I remember because I started out, you know, even though I had that job in high school, 
I did not consider it a voice acting career. It was just a, a goofy summer job on a cartoon that nobody I knew watched. So I came home after college and pursued on camera acting and stage. Mm -hmm. And so a few years later, actually it was after a, several years of Mad TV where we did claymation pieces and it got me doing multiple characters on mic as opposed right. to just multiple characters on camera, which I was also doing on Mad TV. And I remember I decided to actively pursue the voice acting thing. Cause at this point, you know, in the post, you know, early nineties era, when cable blew up, voice acting became a job, right? You know, cause when we were kids, it was just something that six guys that Mel Blanc and five other dudes, right. Voiced every cartoon of our childhood, right. You know, Mel Blanc, Dawes Butler, you know, <laughs> that was it. Um, but in the 90s, once Nickelodeon had 24 hours of children's programming, there was a lot more cartoon voices. And so like, oh, this could be a path now. And I remember one of my early sessions, I fell into my on-camera acting, face acting. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, Phil, stop, try it again. Do that line again, angrier. I did it again. They said, hold on, we're going to play them both back. And they sounded exactly the same. And I realized what you just right. said. Oh my God, I just made an angrier face. Right. And that's one of the you know, skills of voice acting, the same way that you have singers. Singers can you know, put forth feeling or fun or whatever through their voice. Right. You know, dancers do it through their bodies. Right. You know, but when you perform, let's say you're doing something on camera, how much thought do you give them? I mean, do you, is it, is it just second nature to go, okay, now I can use the rest of my body or do, how much thought do you have to go in between uh, different, you know, uh, skill sets, I guess, you know? Well, the, the good thing is, you know, you do have to, you know, get a switch in your head uh -huh. because when you're on stage, it's the exact same job bringing this script to life, but you have to do it with different tools. Right. And right. the same thing when you're doing it on camera and the same thing when you're doing it on microphone, you have to, you have to gauge. Okay. Cause you know, you read the script, you see the character, you embody it, yeah. but then it's how do you communicate it to the audience? Right. Right. You know? And it's funny because with voice acting, you know, we learn to run the character through our, our ears. You know, when you see in the old days, you see, you know, yeah. announcers doing this, do you know what that is? No, about? What, what is that? It's because all of us, you know, regular people hear our voices from inside our heads. We're not hearing what other people hear. But when you do this, you're channeling oh, your voice that out of your mouth into your ear. So you hear what your voice sounds like outside your head oh i see i that's so funny i thought they were stopping their ear but they're not they're just re redirecting the voice yeah into their ear yes oh, wow i had no idea so you, you can hear the subtlety you know because if if you do something with your teeth you don't hear that inside your head yeah it's only what people hear but that's something you might want with a character right you know i, I always when i teach workshops I always try to tell people like, there are things we hear, there's, it's the same thing with your face. Uh -huh. When you wanna you know, express anger, you don't just do your face flat, you, you know? And it's the same thing with, if, if there's something about a character, let's say I'm doing this character, but then I see the drawing and the guy's got a big beard. Oh, well, 
let me make him sound let me make him sound beardier right right which isn't necessarily true just growing a beard doesn't change your voice uh-huh. but there are things that when we hear something we get the sense of it right do you have a preference now i mean because do you have a preference you work so much in voice acting but do you have a do you prefer that over a lot you know like on camera um no it's funny because you know at comic cons people will ask which you work in so many media what's your favorite uh-huh. and the truth of the matter is and this is what i tell them it's not about the media it's about the quality it's quality of the writing or, or what yes uh-huh. well the, the the quality of the writing the quality of the directing the quality uh-huh. of the experience because to me the cartoon Samurai Jack, which is, I consider a work of art, that has more in common with Pulp Fiction right. than it does with, you know, Pound Puppies or some like goofy little Saturday morning cartoon that's more focused on selling toys than on actually putting out story. Yeah, right, right. But in terms of voice, I mean, you don't have to get into hair and makeup, you don't have to memorize anything. And that's a whole other skill as well memorizing right. the, the the text well but that that's actually harder because when you work on stage or on camera mm-hmm. you get time to rehearse right you get to practice with a director helping guide you you know people someone watching you and you build the character over time and then you don't have to make it work till the camera says till they say right. action right but when you're doing voiceover you're handed a sheet of paper, you're reading words off a page, and you have to bring those to life instantly. Yeah, that's exactly. Now, do you, because when we worked together uh, on on Glenn, well, we did King of the Hill first, but on Glenn Martin, just so people know, you didn't audition. We just, we call you up. Hey, we book you the oration, and you come in, you show up, you're, you got the job, and nice. you show up. And I remember approaching you saying, okay, Phyllis, the character, I remember the character's name was Erasmus. And uh, he, the only thing you knew about him was that he had a milky eye. He was like 70s and he had a milky eye. And I go, what voices did you bring? <laughs> and you, you you gave me like three different voices. And I think I said, that one, a little more gravelly. And boom, that was it. You jumped right, right into it. You, exactly. That was it. You're ready to go. <laughs> and that was the amount of direction you got. Go. <laughs> right? See, and we did that in a minute and a half. Yeah. Had we been working on a movie, I would have had to go in for um, wardrobe, had them try on seven different outfits, had them send you the pictures, you know, over two weeks while I was memorizing all the lines for us to come to that conclusion. But on most of the voiceover you do, is that how it is? It's just basically they book you for the day and, you know, unless you're a regular, they just book you, you come on in and you spend an hour or two and then that's it. Is that how it works for you well, mostly? Ho- hopefully, I mean, most of the time you get the script ahead of time. So you get to <laughs> read the story, know the context. Right. But that's just one episode. You don't have the entire, you know, arc of the story. You know, don't know everything about the, you know, if you're playing the villain, about the, the hero. So you learn most of it when you come into the session. But then there's another thing that you have to bring to the table, which is a whole, like, you, okay, you're an excellent actor, but you also have, the, the, when you do these voices, they don't sound like they're coming from you. Like, they sound like they come from 10 different people. And so the, how do you, like, how do you approach that? How are you making voices that don't sound anything like the, any, any other voice that you do? Well, it varies. Um, I mean, there are, it's funny because now over the years, you know, people will bring up some old character 
and I realized, okay, that sounds a little similar to that other one, but I realized it's not about, I used to think when I was younger, starting in voice acting, I used to think it was about, no, no, every voice should not sound anything like the other one. Right. You know, um, but I realized it's more about embodying the character. And the thing is, you know, these characters are all different. So I need them to, I want them to sound different. Right. I mean, like, like when I first got to King of the Hill, I was shocked when you hear the voices that you've been watching the show forever and then you see the actress playing, you go, whoa, that voice is coming from that person? That doesn't sound anything close to their, like, there's a transformation that you're able to do with your voice, but like, that's a different skill. I mean, forget about even, yes, I know embodying the character, but you're really playing with your vocal cords in a way that almost seems impossible to someone like me. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, and it's it's a it's a skill set that not everybody has. Like I said, some right. people just like um, when on Samurai Jack, I worked with um, Mako Iwamatsu, uh -huh. you know, an older Japanese actor who was an icon. He had starred in movies, starred on Broadway. You know, his, his name was above the title on a Stephen Sondheim musical. Right. But he had a very distinctive, you know, heavy, very textured, heavily accented voice. And I figured, okay, he's just doing his voice. And I remember there was one episode where they cast him as a secondary character mm. in the episode. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, Jesus, what are they doing? Uh -huh. His voice is so distinct. I mean, that's like casting The Rock in two characters in a movie. Right. <laughs> you know, like, nobody's going to get fooled. Um, but he blew my mind and taught me a masterclass because what he did was he did not completely transform his voice, but he acted the second character from a completely different perspective. You know, Los Datis, you know, he performed it completely differently than he performed Aku the villain. Uh -huh. and, I, and when you watch the episode, you can't tell it's him. Right, you can't tell. And now, part of that has to do with the art, you know, because you change your changing your voice, but they're also changing the drawing. Yeah, that that's true. But I wonder how much work do you on your own at home? Like, how much do you think about other voices? Do you you go? Do you hear a voice and you go, "Hey, that's an interesting thing. Maybe I should," you know? Do you practice at all? Do you? I don't know. Are you are you constantly trying to invent new new voices for yourself? Well, I'm I'm not a singer, but I've always had an ear. Right. for speech it i do a lot of impressions uh -huh. you know comedically and sometimes just job wise actually weirdly 10th grade my second year of acting mm. i got the part in our one of our high school plays we did a production of play it again sam okay and in 10th grade i played humphrey bogart <laughs> okay <laughs> and i spent the entire production trying to do my best impression of Humphrey Bogart. If that plane leaves and you're not on it, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. And so I watched a lot of, you know, videotapes of Humphrey Bogart. And I, and I also had to learn how to do that impression and project it right in a, in a theater because there was no microphone. But I think maybe that helped start me right. on the, you know, aping people's voices thing. 
which when I started doing sketch comedy, right, I leaned into that too. Oh, I'm gonna do a Michael Jackson sketch, you know, it, right? Because you so how is that? Um, you were talking about so that, that brings us to Mad TV. So there goes your. I don't know how how did you get that uh, that audition? What did you bring? What did you bring to that audition? You know, for yourself. Well, I when I was in college, um, I was part of a improv comedy group that started and I loved it. You know, having been taught that the, you know, the key to drama is conflict, but then being introduced in your late teens, early twenties to this concept of yes. And, and yes. And yeah, you know, improv is collaborative theater. Mm. Make your partner look good right. Work together. You know, right. all of this very positive energy. It's like, Oh, wow. This isn't just about performance. This is a great life philosophy. Yeah. So after graduation, I came home to LA and I started taking classes at the Groundlings Theater, mm -hmm. the sketch comedy and improv group. And, and I did that not for the career, but because I wanted improv back in my life. Right. And doing improv, that led me into sketch comedy and writing. Right. Because that's what the Groundlings do. It's like, Okay, that's a great improv. Write it down. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now do that character again. Come up with another scene for him. And so that's what you you brought to the audition, like what three different characters or something? Yeah, well, by the time Mad TV came around, I had been doing sitcoms, you know, from the um, early '90s to the mid '90s. This was '95. Right. So I went to audition for uh, Mad TV, and the people at Fox had seen me guest on a bunch of shows. Right. And in fact, I went to audition for Mad TV in what they call second place because I had done a pilot for Fox right. before right. Mad. So it's funny because uh, I went in there thinking, no, this pilot is gonna is amazing. We're gonna be the new Barney Miller. All right, fine agents, I'll go for this sketch thing, whatever. I've been doing sketch for six years, but whatever. And so I went in and they said, okay, bring in some some of your characters. What century is calling? Yeah, <laughs> that's your phone from 1970. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or is that our alarm clock? Ah, uh, no, it's. I forgot to. What's your phone? It's your iPhone. It's my agent calling. Oh, okay. you want? I don't need it? to talk to them. That's Hollywood. Yes. Yeah, I can't uh, believe your agent actually calls you. Mine doesn't call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let me let me go back. Yeah. Um, we're going to put all this in. This is all funny. <laughs> well, anyway, I went to audition for Mad TV, having done several years at the Groundlings and having uh -huh. been voted into the main company of the Groundlings alongside Jennifer Coolidge. So you were performing. Oh, so you were. That's great. So you were performing regularly yeah. on stage. Okay. So, so sketch comedy was solidly in my back pocket. Yeah. And, you know, I've been you know, I finally started making a living as an actor. I didn't have to do my day job, you know, right. just doing guest spots and whatnot. And I went in there without any sense of desperation. I don't need this. Right. I've already got this pilot. And they said, okay, bring us your characters and a couple of impressions, and we'll show you a couple of our sketches. You know, so there are three steps to each audition. Uh-huh. And it's funny because later, after I got the job, I talked to the showrunner and he said, oh man, you were so relaxed. We loved it. Oh, wow. 
you know, because I remember when we had a, a callback and there was somebody from the studio, this woman was sitting there like this, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, did I wake you? <laughs> <laughs> and then, wow, I mean, good for you. And then but what became of that pilot? It didn't go to series? The no. Other Boy, had you known that. <laughs> I know. Well, and when we, when we got the callback from Magic, I'm like, what the heck? And my agent said, yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody at Fox said, don't worry about the second position. Right. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, right, so you did that for a number of years. And then and what, what along the way, when did um, Pulp Fiction occur during this? Um, actually, I did Pulp Fiction before Mad TV. Okay. So it's funny because the first episode of Mad TV had a Pulp Fiction parody in it. And <laughs> did you play yourself? <laughs> yes, they pitched me playing oh, myself. Oh my God. It was so fun. I mean, uh, it's such a classic role. I mean, do, you, do, you, do people want to talk to you about that all the time? Not, not really. What? I, I find that people only bring up Pulp Fiction around the time when a new Tarantino movie comes out. Okay. But I mean, there are some people who, you know, are big fans of it but the funniest thing is there will be a friend somebody i've known for several years but it's the first time they've watched pulp fiction since we met right like, oh, oh my god <laughs> no i didn't realize that was you that's so great i mean so right just to remind people again so that was a scene was it was uh samuel jackson and uh and john travolta they yes I guess the the that plot line was a bunch of like straight laced kind of college kids, kind of up, you know, they you know good kids who probably made one bad decision, right. but they weren't troublemakers. They were good kids, and then they owed money, and then and then I guess they you know the, so they shoot. I guess they come into the apartment right. and they uh, they wind up shooting up the place, and they take you. I guess they they're going to take you to the big guy, your hostage, and then he, you're in the back of the car, and they got a gun trained on you, and, and it hits a bump. And they accidentally blow your head off. Right. Was, well, <laughs> well, actually, the backstory that Quentin and I talked about is that because uh, my character is Marvin. He's the kid who gets his brains blown out in the back of the car. Right. Um, but we decided that the story was Jules uh -huh. knew somebody who knew Marvin and arranged for Marvin to. That's why Marvin gets up and opens the door. Okay. And lets them in. He's on their side. Oh, is that right? Is that I should watch that again. I don't I didn't pick that up at all. And is so it, he's not they're not taking him as a hostage. because uh, oh, actually Samson's like, how many because you know, John asked him, how many are in there? It's like, well, there's a oh. and plus our guy. Oh, I gotta watch that again. I missed that. Okay, yeah. it's been a while. So, okay. So the idea is that Jules knew somebody who knew one of the kids that took Marcellus's briefcase. So he made a connection and was right. like, okay, we figured it out. He's our man inside. He's going to open the door for us at 745. We're going to come in. We're going to get the briefcase. But of course, in my head, the idea is that Marvin didn't realize they were going to kill everybody. Right. Right. He thought they were just going to take the briefcase. Right. So he's freaked out. Um, and so how many days is, 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 were you, how many days of a shoot is that for you? Is that a week or what? Um, I spent about two weeks. Uh, there was the car scene and the apartment mm -hmm. scene. But the, the most ironic thing was I shot my scene after they had shot the Harvey Keitel cleaning up my body scene. Right. So when I came on to set, everybody was looking at me like they recognized me because they had been see looking at me 
dead for two months. But how do we, but when you say looking at you dead, whether they're photos or something or what? No, no, they built, they built a dummy. The dummy. Because oh. there's a, there's a sequence right. where the Harvey Keitel character comes to clean up yeah. and they carry the body out of the car into the Tarantino character's right. apartment. That must you have been freaky. So everybody had been looking at this body in the trunk, but you know, and then when I walked on, they were like, it's, it's the same thing of like when you walk into a room and you forget you're wearing a name tag. Yeah. Did you know how great that movie was going to be at the time? Yes. I mean, you, you can tell. How can you tell? I couldn't tell how successful it oh. was going to be because, you know, Reservoir Dogs was really good. Right. But it wasn't, you know, it was a big indie movie. Yes. Right. But when you read the script for Pulp Fiction, uh-huh. it leapt off the page. Right. It's funny because, like, when I went to audition for it, after meeting Quentin Tarantino, we did a Groundlings improv show together. Oh, is that right? Because he's he was friends with Julia Sweeney, who was a Groundlings alum, right. and she invited him to come do a show. I was in the cast, right. and when he was casting um, Pulp Fiction, he was thinking about Marvin. He told the casting lady, "Hey, there's this black guy at the Groundlings. Go find him." Right. And I remember get preparing for the audition, reading through the scene three times. It jumped into my. I, w- I had it. I was off book by the time I memorized because the way it's written, even though it's not everyday life, every line follows exactly what the one before it would say. And it feels natural, even though it is such a heightened world he's created. Yeah, he really is. I mean, you know, he's a master with with words. He doesn't, does he, he doesn't, I can't imagine allow much improv. I mean, it seems like he knows what he wants, right? Oh yeah, no, no, no. The, yeah. the, the script is like a Rosetta Stone. It is yes. carved. Yeah. Actually, the the only two things that changed in the script were one, a, a line of Samuel Jackson's character about pork, because uh-huh. originally um, they're talking about a pig, and he's like, "Oh, that's the um, Cary Grant of pigs," right. and Sam was like, "No, man, my guy, I don't think this guy would ever think Cary Grant was cool." Right. So they changed it to um, the the reference to. Um, the um the ed, ed albert um show um uh, oh uh green acres green acres oh, yeah yeah wow. yeah it's like the pig on green acres <laughs> and and the and the other moment that changed from the script to what we shot was um because of what a thought that john had uh-huh. john travolta yeah oh because because this was a low budget indie movie they made this movie with all those stars for only $8 million. Are you kidding me? Really? Yeah. And part of that saving money was we rehearsed the entire movie on stage before we started shooting. Right. And I remember going to a soundstage at, at, in Culver City on Sony and meeting John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson for the first time in rehearsal. Right. And I remember walking in there and it's like, Quinn's like, oh, hey, Phil, this John, Sam, this is Phil. And John Travolta goes, oh, geez, this is a guy, I got to kill this guy? The ice is going to hate me. <laughs> That's a pretty good Travolta. So I just like him. <laughs> oh, thanks. And he just, I thought he was just joking, but eventually he talked to Quentin because originally in the back of the car, the gun is supposed to go off accidentally yeah. and shoot Marvin in the throat. Okay. And then he sits there gurgling while they go back and forth bantering. Oh, damn, what are we going to do? Well, right. we can't take him to the hospital. Well, I don't have nobody in the valley. Well, all right, put him out of his misery. When I, on the count of three, I'll hit the horn. And so John's character was supposed to shoot me the second time on purpose. 
And John said, no, no, Quentin, Quentin, Quentin. If my character kills this kid on purpose, it's going to, people won't, won't like him. And he was right. It would have negatively affected his sequence with Uma Thurman. It, that's absolutely right. But do you think he was, Travolta was interested in protecting the character or protecting himself as an actor? You know, like how people saw him. What do you think? Um, I think it was, he had a connection to the audience, which I guess was mostly through him, but also through the character. Because, I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, Quinns could have just said, no, no, the character's just, he's a nasty, you know, junkie. Yeah. He does nasty stuff. But I think John was like, no, 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 this whole sequence with the girl, he's not nasty. Right. So, right. so and, and Quentin agreed with John's yeah. take on the character. Yeah, that's so interesting. Isn't that, that wild? Yeah, that is. See, it's so funny. Listening to you, you can so hear, like, how thoughtful you are about acting, how, how much, how it's not, it's a craft. It's a, you know, you re, I really hear that from you, how much you put, how passionate you are about the craft of acting, not just being on stage, not just, uh, you know, doing voices, but the craft of it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. How, do you miss or do you get a chance to perform on stage a lot? Because that was your original love. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thankfully, um, I'm still holding on to my performance foundation. Um, my friend Jordan Black, who is another Groundlings alum, uh -huh. um, about what 12 years ago now, created a group. Um, and we do a show monthly live on stage, an improv show at the Groundlings. Okay. Called the black version uh -huh. it's, it's an all-black cast and we take a suggestion from the audience of a classic or iconic motion picture and then we improv the black version of it but what if you're not familiar with the the classic well that's the tricky part is our director karen mariyama mm -hmm. who was one of my teachers at the groundlings and is now one of my peers has an encyclopedic knowledge uh -huh. she can take a movie from the black and white era and know the entire structure or something that dropped that dropped on netflix last week and she knows everything but you what if you don't know it well what we do what she does is she she as the director she guides the scenes uh -huh. okay all right phil you're gonna play um this you know like let's say we're doing the black version of princess bride phil you'll you're this um you know swordsman who is incredibly skilled uh, uh -huh. audience what do you think his name okay inigo montoya that's your name that's funny <laughs> <laughs> and like she'll assign the characters right. and then guide us from scene to scene but you know our choices you know um like when we did the black version of princess bride it was called her mama and them and prince humperdinck was prince humpty hump right <laughs> you know and sometimes the choices will change the the you know um, line, line of the story, but she tries to keep us, you know, take us through the iconic scenes. Right. And this is once a month you do this? Yes. That's yeah. a big commitment. I, I yeah. Mean, and for 12 years. Yeah. Every, yeah. I mean, you must, you probably took a break during the pandemic for a little bit. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. We did. But wow. Um, and recently we've, uh, you know, we've built an audience and a reputation and we've started booking on the road. We've um, we've played uh, the Kennedy Center in Washington D.C. twice now. So you take it on the and and how were you able to sell tickets on the road? I mean, so easily. Um, it's 
I, I think it's it's the the venues and also um, you know somewhat just the, those of us in the group. I mean, Jordan was a writer on SNL and mm -hmm. a part of the um, guest cast on Community. Uh, Cedric Yarbrough from Reno 911 and tons of other shows. So it's is just your name. Cast. So it's kind of just your names. People like, hey, we want we, you know we recognize these names. We want to go see it. You, you know this. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm not exactly sure how we managed to sell out. You know, That's amazing all over the place. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's so much fun. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you, and it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watchlist. Wow. I mean, is there a limit to how much you can, I mean, just organizing that to get everyone to get the time off. I mean, that's got to be logistically. Yeah, yeah the, the tours aren't uh, that, we don't do them that often because, you know, Gary Anthony Williams from, you know, Malcolm in the Middle and stuff, everybody in our cast works a lot. Yeah. So we can really only guarantee the show once a month. Right. Um, but sometimes when we tour, not everybody goes. Because, yeah, you have to, I mean, if someone books a part and you're shooting that at night, what, what are you going to do? That's the way right. it is. Or you, or you have to fly to Vancouver for six months. Yeah, right. right. And that's part of, that's, I mean, that's part of the, the plus of, of being, for you, for doing a lot of voice acting, is that, you know, you probably get to lead a pretty sane life. But for an actor, it's, it can be very hard. You know, right. on well, and, and it's also one of the wonderful things about the progress that has come since we started the show, uh -huh. because part of the reason Jordan created the show is because those of us in the improv world, you know, who are people of color, oftentimes spent the majority of our time being the one. Yeah. But over the years, the, you know, the numbers, the diversity in the improv world, you know, expanded. It used to be a very suburban art form. Yeah. But now, you know, I, I, I credit this mostly to Wayne Brady doing Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yeah, right. Yeah. And you so know? that really opens up more opportunities yeah. and more voice. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. That, you know, that really has changed a lot. How, how have you seen it change your opportunities in the past, I don't know, whatever, 20 years, 30 years, you know, however long? Well, it's, it's, it's changed in a lot of ways. One, when I got voted into the Groundlings in 1992, I was the first black person to get voted into the company in its 18 years of existence. You're kidding me. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. And, and now the pool of, you know, um, black people, you know, who are groundlings has expanded. Right. It's not right. just one every 18 years. Yeah. Right. But, and in terms of more, you know, more opportunities for you, even, you know, I mean, everything's, everything's, really opened up for you right i mean i imagine well, well because we have you know the those of us in entertainment have expanded yeah you know what we consider will work you know i was um talking uh, my son just graduated from nyu and one of his classmates um is the son of the woman who directed the woman king okay that viola davis you right. know action movie right and i remember watching it and thinking oh my god when I was 18, no studio in the world right would touch that right would have would have you know greenlit yeah. a action movie, of, you know about black women. 
Yeah, right. And and the fact that you know it's out there now and is just another big movie. It's yes. you know, it's not considered you know uh, you know a once in a lifetime thing anymore. That's the progress. And the fact that we have you know middle aged women mm-hmm. leads of of TV series. Yep. You know, back in the old days, the only lead of a TV series was one beautiful person or one famous, you know, hilarious person. Yeah. But now they've opened it up. I wonder, is your son planning to go into the arts now that he graduated from NYU? Yes, yes. He's he's a musician. He uh, oh. writes and sings and dances and raps and produces. And he's part of the Clive Davis Recorded Music Program where they teach them music and the music business. Yeah, wow. One of his teachers was Clive Davis's daughter, who's wow. a lawyer. And do you, I mean, it's, but it's, the music is different from what you do. I wonder, I wonder if you're able to, does it all feel like, I don't know how to help? <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh-huh. Like, dad, dad, because when your kid goes into, you know, show business, you think, well, I've been in show business for 40 years. Like, right. you haven't been in the music business. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you're right. That's true. <laughs> so interesting. Wow. Wow. And, and, and so what about, I guess, you know, like what's next for you? Is is you just, is it more of the same? Is there more? Well, actually, I know you have a pilot you, that you were, you're working on Mm. that, you know, you're getting into the writing side of the business. Yes. Yes. And that actually over the last couple of years has been a a slight shift. Um, You know, having been performing for so long now, since the eighties, um, I've also, and I've also been writing since the 90s when I started at the Groundlings. Right. I was writing sketches and I wrote on Mad TV. Um, but just recently, earlier in this year, I took a job as a professional writer on a television show for the first time. Right. And, and it was pretty wild to have 30 years of sitcoms under your belt and then suddenly see it from a completely different angle. And what, and what was your impression of that? Um, it, it was wild to, cause like you were talking about the way I look at acting and break it down and, yeah. you know, look at all the subtle distinctions. I had never looked at, you know, TV writing that way, okay. but to suddenly be in a room with people who look at, who see it that way for decades, you're like, Oh, wow. How do I feel like a rookie at 56? Yeah. Right. And so there's a lot of catching, a lot of catching up little, yeah. you know, that's so, and, and are you enjoying it as much or as much as you thought, or what do you think? Um, well, it's the challenge part was, was a little bit, you know, tough, but yeah. it was great to be working on a really good show with great talented people and to be learning something new. So, yeah. Oh, like for me, like when we would write sketches at the groundlings, uh-huh. you didn't think about anything about like, well, beginning, middle and end, right? Three minutes. Right. Right. You know, but now you have to think about, you know, character arcs and the, you know, okay, well, if you introduce the character's father, we have to think about their entire family. Is the mother still alive? You're like, oh, right. When you write a sketch, you don't have to think about You don't about think about that. any of that. Right. And when you, and when you're acting the part, you, you know, yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's so interesting. I, Cause I always say that acting and writing are really they're two sides of the same coin. It really helps to study both, whatever you want to do, study both. Exactly. But, uh, it's all, and so, yeah, that, that finding that emotional arc and, uh, you know, 
it's all it's all new for you but uh yeah. i wonder you know but you're enjoying it well and you know? and working alongside i mean because there were people that was, you know one guy had showrun will and grace another guy worked on arrested yeah. development i mean like you know one guy was showrunner on five other shows to to watch how they because mm -hmm. for me i would like hey i would just pitch out a joke i'm just gonna say something i think is funny right. but they had this like you know superman microvision where they could take that joke and see yeah. how it could affect the mm -hmm. the entire scene the entire episode and the entire season yeah right it's like, like where does that the top of their head right and where does it go where does that moment go into the script into right. the you know is it act one or is it act three and so that, yes yeah that, yes i mean i'm sure you have that that x-ray vision too where yeah. you can look at a script and see the act structure yeah and you know and or just even the structure of just the scene yeah like, what is this character where do they start and where do they finish yeah that's right well we were we ran a show for mark Marin for four years right. and um you know he was one of the writers in it and he would pitch an idea because i, I want to say this and then right. we put up next one and then i remember at one point <laughs> We were talking about it, and we said, Mark, I don't think this can go in Act 1. Is it okay if we put it in Act 3? And he's like, oh, I don't care where you put it. It's like, right. <laughs> as long as in the script. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what the character would say. Yeah, that right. <laughs> I was like, we're like, oh, that's a relief. I thought you were going to get mad for him. <laughs> you know, he didn't care about that. So funny. Right, yeah, just because as performers, we're not looking at the act structure. Right, right. You know, most of us. I, I mean, imagine there are some people who do. Like, well, I want to build up from act two to act three, you know, yeah. but most of us don't. We're just, what is the guy feeling in this scene right now? Right. And how to get to that, the truth of that. How difficult is it for you to make yourself vulnerable like that on stage to like to go there, you know, whatever, maybe it's crying or whatever it is, how right. difficult it is for you just to allow yourself to go there? Um well it's not necessarily easy it's definitely something that i had to you know a skill set to build uh -huh. you know i was not one of those people when i started acting who could make themselves cry on cue uh -huh. you know but i remember i had to do a scene on a, a stephen bochco show called philly and it's like okay well this character is really you know emotionally you know i got to figure out how to make sure i'm putting that out there Right. So I thought about something sad and let it, you know, something different than what the character was thinking about. But mm -hmm. it's again, like, you know, with the voice acting, like what sounds beardy, you also have to think about your face. What looks yeah. sorrowful and how do you make yourself look sorrowful? Right. You know, although one of the things that helped me learn where to, to try to go was working on Pulp Fiction with Samuel L. Jackson. What he what go on? He gave you some great advice or what? No, he just what he showed because you would stand there offset talking to this cool old guy who was amazing. You know, yeah. he's just talking about golfing or his daughter. Whatever. But then when the camera started rolling, yeah, the person you were just talking to disappeared. Right on set, I looked over and I was looking into the eyes of someone completely different than yeah. Samuel L. Jackson. Right. And I remember standing there in my 20s thinking, oh, my God, he transformed himself internally and so that it shows externally. Yeah, that's like I got to learn how to do that. And then how did you learn how to do that? Um, well, I, I'm still haven't gotten to his level, but 
um, what I learned is you have to figure out one how you look and how you get it's it's like a map mm-hmm. you know um, you know if you figure out how to guide your internal self to a place where your external self does what's on the page that's what acting is you know otherwise you would just be reading words to be or not to be that is the question you know it's not just about the words it's how do you express the feeling and sam taught me there is a way Mm -hmm. where you don't have to do nine minutes of to get into character okay if you know the root within yourself you can do it like that right so i I realized it was about learning your internal you know where do where do you put your sadness where do you put your anger and where's what's the difference between your anger and this character's anger guide yourself there and then you know connect the two and do you have moments where you feel like "I, i didn't do it i didn't get there you know well i mean that's the the one good thing about on camera work and what we're talking about about the rehearsal is uh-huh. you can f- find take the time to find it. But yes, no, there's there's always you know, not every job is a home run. Uh-huh. You're like, oh, I wish I had gone a little bit deeper with that, right. you know. Um, and sometimes you feel it there. Yes. Other times you don't realize it until after you see it, and maybe it's they picked a take that right. you didn't, oh, that wasn't the best one. Why didn't they, right. ah, you know, not, nothing is ever perfect. Right. Right. You know, and, but do you, like, sometimes I'll watch, I'll be on set and I'll watch an actor do something. Usually it's drama and, or a dramatic moment. Right. And, and they let it all out. And afterward, you know, you'll cut. I'm always like, I wonder if they need a moment alone. You know what I'm saying? It's like, right. I mean, what are your, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, I'm not a, a method guy. I don't put myself into because yeah, you you hear a lot of, about that about a guy. It's like, yeah, man, I had to play this character, and my girlfriend hated me for a month because when I went home, I was still part of that dude. Yeah, you know. Um, and I don't know if it's my improv and sketch background where I take my character off like a hat. Uh huh. I don't take them home, and you know. I, I try to embody it during the performance, but I don't feel it's, you know, required to have to be the character. Right, but if you spend a whole day as a character... It can, it can be draining. Yeah, right. It can be draining, right? You have to wash yourself of that. If, if you don't like that, you know, if you don't like that person, you have right. to wash yourself of that, right? And how do you do that? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's about... You know, when you leave the set, mm-hmm. you leave those feelings behind. Although some actors don't. But you've some just actors, experienced, you spent yeah. the whole day experiencing that, mm-hmm. that whatever it is. And yes, I understand you left it, but you spent the whole day angry or, or mournful or bitter or whatever it is. Like, how do you, you still have to wash yourself from that, don't you? Well, but I mean, for me, I'm not fooling myself. I'm not trying to convince myself that the script and the character is real and me because that's the thing like if you spend all day with your drunken uncle who's nasty on thanksgiving that's not fun right you know and then when you leave you're like 
you can you can still be you right. know upset about it but you're you're con but because you're connected to that person for me it's about that is fiction right i only you know i'm connected to the fiction while performing i don't feel like i have to be you know like when i play hermes on futurama i don't have to speak in a jamaican accent for the entire season right you know but are there moments and maybe this is less so for a voice acting but when you're when you're not when you're on camera there are moments when you're like you're cognizant that oh i'm acting now mm -hmm. you know and then you and you have to oh i gotta get back uh, you know and you're you're delivering your lines right. in the middle of the line you realize i'm acting well it, it it's interesting because i think part of this mental philosophy i have is you know comes from watching sam jackson uh -huh. because he wasn't method right. he wasn't acting like jewels you know acting like a gangster a man with a gun the whole time right and he showed me that and it's funny because while he was doing that frank whaley who had worked on the doors was telling anecdotes about how when val kilmer was playing jim morrison he was the exact opposite right he, before they started shooting he sent out a memo everyone is to refer to me as jim or mr morrison right you know and he had a tent offset where he would you know work to be in character and would only come on set as jim morrison he right. was ne they never they never spoke to val right right so you know what you talked about yes it's definitely difficult for some people, if that's their approach. No, no, my approach is I have to live right. this character. Right. You know. So you're so you okay, so that's not your problem. You don't have to worry. That's not something you have to yeah. No. Interesting. I am so interested in the the actor's approach to the material, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, we write it, but how do you guys how do you guys do it? Because there's a difference. There really is a difference. Uh you know, we hear it one way, we envision it. But we can't do it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We can't get it out of our heads onto into reality, but you can. And so I'm always like, how did you do that? <laughs> right. Well, it was it was it was interesting experience, you know, from the writing acting, you know, crossover. Mm. Um, I worked on a I was developing an animated show based on a friend of mine's webcomic called Goblins. Okay. And my partner, Matt King, and I, we were both performers, but we adapted the comic into a script. And I called a bunch of my voice actor friends because we were, we were going to make a trailer, you know, to bring these, you know, comic characters to life yeah. in animation. And it was funny because Matt and I are actors. We had, you know, written the script and we'd acted out these scenes. And so in our heads, we, we thought we knew exactly how they'd sound. But then we brought in amazing... Billy West, Maurice LaMarche, mm -hmm. Jim Cummings, mm -hmm. Steve Bloom, Jennifer. And it was funny because when they performed the scenes we had written, they took it to a whole other level right. beyond what existed in our in our heads. Right. Like, oh, oh, my God, they made it so much better than I even imagined it could be. Right. Right. And it was wild because I'd heard writers you know, express a similar kind of thing. It's like, oh my gosh, you guys did such, such amazing with, and, it, but to have it, you know, as someone who'd been a performer to have someone take your writing and mm. do that miracle with it was an eye-opening experience. Like, ah, but, 
there's something else that you do because you know there's a handful of uh, actors voiceover actors they always work you're one of them for a pro you call them in and it's it's knowing especially in comedy knowing where how to hit the joke i mean we always say it all the time can they hit a joke and knowing where the laugh falls not just somewhere but which word makes it makes it funny you know mm -hmm. you know and do you think that's your instinct or is that just something you've gotten better at Yes, I think that's something that has grown from performing, especially in, sense of, in the sense of comedy, because I remember, you know, starting out on stage, doing, you know, plays, then doing improv, which is specific comedy, because when you're doing a play, hmm. the writer has decided which moments are funny, which moments yeah. are dramatic, you know, but when you're doing improv, you and the audience are deciding what's funny. Right. And... And I remember coming, you know, back to L.A. and pursuing acting and then starting to get work on camera and doing comedy. And I realized, oh, wow, I don't have an audience. Yes. And you, have, you have to create a gauge in your head for is this funny? Because when you're on stage and you're doing a funny bit, you can, you know, yeah. you can feel from the audience whether, oh, I need to push that up a little bit. Right. But when you're working on camera, this, the crew is not allowed to laugh out loud. Right. You know, so you have to create an audience inside, an internal audience in your head to help you know, is, is this the timing of this? Right. It, and it's funny because I've developed that. And a couple of years into it, I remember I got a job uh, working on NYPD Blue, uh -huh. playing a guy who is being questioned you know interrogated in the police station and then gets roughed up by ricky schroeder uh -huh. but the the lines because this guy's on drugs and i remember like oh wow i gotta be careful this could be funny because he's doing things <laughs> like you know like, you know because ricky schroeder you know sees blood on his on his clothes like take your clothes off it's like and the guy take my clothes what you gonna do what you ain't gonna put a boom on my ass right and I remembered, I have to gauge the funny way to do this and not do that. Yes, right, right. Because, you know, there was, I, and I realized, no, no, pull back the tempo and lean into the anger, not the outrage. Right, right. You know? It's so and then it'll be Then it'll be dramatic, not comedy. It's again, here you are approaching it really from the craft. It's not, yeah, I just wish... When I hear people, I want to be an actor. Okay, take it serious. Are you going to study? Or are you just going to do you want to be famous? Which what is it you want? Ooh, you know, right? And well, let's talk about that for a second. What, what's your relationship with with fame? How do you you know? Well, that's a very interesting thing because I feel like that has changed mm -hmm. from the generation. Like when you're our age, when we were growing up pre-internet, mm -hmm. fame only applied to stars yeah right now you know i mean nobody knew voice actors the only voice actor anybody knew was mel blank right you know people to this day still don't know what dawes butler looks like right but the, now anybody who appears on anything even a youtuber right has some level of fame right you know and and it's wild because because of the internet the, you know it now matters what you say in the old days if you were a television character actor like if you were richard mulligan yeah it never nobody was ever gonna post what you said about something 
Right. It was only if you were Joan Crawford right. or, you know, Marilyn Monroe, like they would be, you know, but nowadays people have access to everyone yeah. that they can see anywhere. So to me, the level, what we call fame has now expanded yeah. you know, in a much greater way, but it's also changed the way people think about performance, you know? And in some ways that's good because like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't do that, you know, character, that stereotypical character because, you know, but in the old days, back in the eighties and nineties, if I was playing a stereotype, you know, gangbanger, which I did. Right. Um, I didn't think about the negative impact of this episode of WIOU on CBS, how that, the negative impact that would have on society. It's yeah. Like, no, I'm just on under five on the, a non top 20 show. Yeah. Right. So but nowadays just, somebody could, it could go viral on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So you just gotta be more, you just gotta be more careful about it, I guess. You're just be more thoughtful. You're just more conscious of it. Yeah. Back right. then you just thought about, is this paycheck going to clear? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because, um, I, I spoke to a group of uh, kids at a, at my daughter's high school about identity in entertainment. Uh -huh. And I told them, about some of the progress, what I perceived as progress. Yeah. Back in the eighties, you know, there were a bunch of us, you know, young black actors trying out to play gang members. Yeah. Those were always the bad guys in the eighties and nineties in a show, you know, and for most of us, those were the only parts. Right. Up. There weren't leads right. available for us until a little later when UPN, the CW, you know, the WB, you know, Fox, <laughs> The, when those new, new um, networks started, they realized, oh, wow, if we can put on a black show, then all those black viewers will tune in and we'll have, you know. Yeah, so, there's, a, there's a whole audience we can tap into, right. Right, but back when there were just three networks, yeah. you, you know, you would have one, yeah, you know, people of color show. Okay, Sanford and Son, because Red Fox is a big star. Right. But then it expanded, and that meant there were more options. Yeah. But now this is wild. Um, several years ago, in the early 2000s, I was working on uh, a project that one of the Zucker brothers did in a web series, uh -huh. which was a, a soap opera parody called Sands of Passion, which was set in a fundamentalist Islam world. Uh -huh. You know, like, you know, there was one scene where there's a family sitting around a table and then their son comes in and they're very upset. It's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be suicide bombing. Why are you home? You know? <laughs> okay. And the, you know, the bulk of the, the cast uh -huh. was of Middle Eastern descent. Right. And it was wild to hear these young actors have the same discussion about playing terrorists. Yeah. That we had had about playing gang members 20 years before. Right. Right. And that was that was a discussion that you was a, was it a common discussion with you and and whoever else was auditioning for these parts and or on yeah the yeah, it's like, yeah hey uh, yeah you, you got to go for it, but hey I got to pay my rent you yeah know, I'll do my best to try to ground the character in reality and not just make it some stereotype but eh, right who knows right. yeah but now you know that was in the early two thousands post nine eleven but yeah. now twenty years later you have a much broader right. you know. Um, level of opportunities for Middle Eastern actors. Yes. You have the series Rami. You right. have the Ms. Marvel series, where there's a Marvel superhero who is of Middle Eastern descent, and you see yeah. her whole family and friends and, you know, her religion. Yeah. You know, 
Whereas 20 years ago, forget it. Yeah. yeah, right. So we're moving forward. Forget for sure. What I always like to, I, I've had you on, I, I always like to uh, conclude with, because uh, you've been so gracious to give me all your, all your so much time and knowledge, but I like to conclude with, what do you, what do you, what do you like to share or encourage or the, like, the next generation? What advice do you have for, for those coming up next? Ooh, well, because I'm old, <laughs> I tend to focus on what I see as the negative impacts of this, these changes. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, the positive impact is growth of diversity and representation. Right. But there's also, you know, some pushes against like, you know, this whole thing about authenticity. Every uh -huh. actor has to be exactly what the character is like. What? If that's true, then we would never have anybody playing vampires. Right. Because yeah. they wouldn't show up on camera. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I try to, you know, get the younger people to focus on, no, no, no. It's about the storytelling. Right. It's about the emotional authenticity, not just about, you know, you know, story authenticity. These are fictional stories. Right. It's just got to feel real. It doesn't have right, to right. be real. But also, the like you said before, because with this internet thing and this change in the concept of fame, mm -hmm. there are so many people who get into performing now just for the attention. Yeah. And I try to encourage people. It's like, no, no, this is an art form. Right. Picasso didn't paint. It's like, I want to get into the Louvre. No, he was trying to express something. That's you know? well, now you really put now I'm going to take more of your time because now I want to hear what your thoughts are on this because AI is coming and it, to me like you but it's exactly what you just said which is art is creating something something from the human experience and expressing it so that you can better understand yourself the world and that so others can better understand them you know the world but the key word i just said is understand the human experience and ai is not human at least not yet it's not sentient mm -hmm. and yet here it's coming after our here it's coming for our jobs and I don't know, what are your, th what are your thoughts on this? Well, the, the scariest thing about that to me is um, I believe that there will definitely be a gap uh -huh. between what the computer creates uh -huh. and what a real artist would create. Right, but by definition, it can't create art. By, by my definition, at least, it can't create art because it is not human, but go on. But the problem is, if the people who are financing it, if the CEOs of the tech company, the people who are making the decision about the content, don't um, prioritize the feeling and the, auth the emotional authenticity, right? they're just, you know, they're just going to go with the... What's the algorithm responding right. to? And I feel like if they start pushing this AI thing, you know, more and more, it's going to be, it's going to turn creative, you know, writing and performance into the same mentality that they use about clickbait. Mm -hmm. You know, because in the old days, Interesting. You, you put out a headline because you wanted to give the people information about the article. But when we moved into the world of infotainment, mm -hmm. no, no, this headline is just to make them click on it. 
right. it doesn't matter if it's true it doesn't matter if it's really what the article is about we want to draw their attention right and that's what the ai you know the algorithms are going to do they're going to you know look, you know they'll go through all the data of our art and say which ones have gotten most attention which have gotten mm -hmm. the most clicks and so that's what they're going to pick you know so it won't be about the best feeling because you know when an executive reads your script they can break it down according to other things they've read but they can also have an internal feeling about it right but the machine that, the machine will not see that's so interesting because I, I that analogy i'd never heard before that click that clickbait analogy which is very interesting mm -hmm. that's actually getting me some thought yeah right it's going to be but until until it becomes sentient uh, if that's a, and, and then it'll actually have an experience but i don't know i i but i wonder if people will appreciate what you and i appreciate about art i wonder if it doesn't if it doesn't matter to them i don't know Ooh, you know you know well i feel like you know that people will feel the difference that the machine cannot feel because you know this this whole idea of it is some when you tell a story that is specific and rooted in your feeling, it has a universal appeal. Exactly. It doesn't just appeal to mm -hmm. the exact same people who've experienced the same thing you have. Right, right, you right. Know? It's the specificity that makes it universal, exactly. Yes. But can it, can AI, will they? Will AI be able to do that? And will anybody care, does people care as much as you and I do? That's all I, that's what worries me. Well, what worries me is that the people making the decisions won't. I, I think we know, I think we already know that. You know, I think they're going to go for whatever's cheaper, you know? Right, right. So, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole mini room thing, I think, is an yeah. example of that. It's like, yeah. wait. I mean, imagine you have an auto factory, and well, I'm just going to have four, you know, robot arms do the same thing that 700 human workers would do. It's like, right. well, you're only going to make four cars a day. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll just, I'll just sell them for more. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, because all they care about is the money. Yeah, they don't. It's so it's so interesting because they had I just wish they would had I wish they'd take a writing class or an acting class. I wish they understood what goes into it. And instead of mm -hmm. treating it like, you know, the assembly line. Yeah. 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 Wow. Phil Lamar, I this has been such an interesting discussion. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate again. I'll say it again because that needs to be said the amount of attention that you bring to your craft and your dedication. I don't know. You, 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 to me, you approach it like a student. You're, it seems like you're constantly studying, you know, oh, what, nice. what more can I learn about what I do? You know what I'm saying? Right. That's, and, and, and you know, what you do rather, like what more can you learn about what you do mm -hmm. so that you can become better at it? It's just fascinating. I have so much admiration for you. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, and I feel the same way about you and the things that you post about writing. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh my God, anybody who clicks on your Instagram is getting a free masterclass because <laughs> you. you have the same focus on the craft and the, yeah. you know, and you, but you communicate the yeah. ideas about it so well. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, we love it. That's all. We love our jobs. We just want to keep doing it. Is that well, but it's, it's rare <laughs> for people to be as talented as you are at creating mm -hmm. and to be able to educate about yeah. the creativity. That's, that's not the same skill set. Right. Right. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know where this was going to go. This, uh, 
journey of starting to post on social media. So I, I, you know, I, I appreciate that kind of feedback. Yeah. Really well, no, I mean, that's, that's why you get the responses you get is because you are giving people, you know, it's not just, here's an idea. Here's a, here's a, you know, yeah. You know, just a little tip. I always wonder if I'm going to, am I, am I, I going to run out of things to say? That's what I worry about. Am I going to run? I mean, surely I ran out about eight months ago, <laughs> right? <laughs> What's going on? You know, I don't know, but I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me. I really, and for sharing your knowledge. It's uh, fantastic. I appreciate Should Is there anything people where people should follow you or, or visit for you or find out what you're um, doing next? Well, yes, yes. There's a, there's two, <laughs> actually, it's funny. Got two really fun series about space, okay, and Earth, right? Um, one is a new episode. This new uh, series called Mulligan, produced by Tina Fey and uh, the creators of Thirty Rock, right? Uh, an animated series on Netflix oh, about good. you know alien invasion that almost destroys the planet, but this you know quirky Boston guy saves the the world. Uh, and then they have to rebuild the world. And you're one of the one of the regulars on it? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. And we've got new episodes of Futurama. That's amazing that they're bringing that back. They're dropping on. We're, we're back from the dead for the fourth yeah. time. <laughs> right. Exactly. They keep on bringing it back. That's great. Good. For, good. Everyone, go check out Phil. He's a, such a talent. I'm not sure if they'll ever recognize you, your voice, because you have so many. But he's, <laughs> he's in them. <laughs> he's in them. I'll tell you that. Phil, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Right, Thanks for having me. Oh, please. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for, for listening. What a great talk. Uh, and until next week, keep, uh, keep writing and keep acting. Okay. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jammin and Phil Hudson. If you're interested in learning more about writing, make sure you register for Michael's monthly webinar at michaeljammin.com slash webinar. If you found this podcast helpful, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. For free screenwriting tips, follow Michael Jammin on social media at Michael Jammin Writer. You can follow Phil Hudson on social media at Phil A. Hudson. This podcast was produced by Phil Hudson. It was edited by Dallas Crane. Music by Ken Joseph. Until next time, keep writing.